All right. Um, if you were here last week, if you were here last week, um, I talked about the Super Bowl. Um, and for the first time this year, I watched the whole game. The, oh, trust me, you don't need to clap for that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. American football is a bit of a mystery for us Brits. Doesn't make sense. Oh, you hear, yeah, rugby, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. Um, why would they wear all these helmets and paddings to smash each other? Um, why would they call it football when most of the you know, sport involves handling, um, a, you know, an egg or something like that. But anyway, I watched the game and it was fantastic. Um, what a grand finale. Um, I really wanted the uh, 69ers to win. <laughs> 49ers? <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> And I, th I thought after that game, I was an expert. I'm not. It's the 49ers. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. Anyway, yeah, it was great. <laughs> Grab your Bibles. <laughs> Let's move on from this conversation. But as you're doing now, I've got a few announcements. Next Sunday is our membership process, the beginning of our membership process. And it begins with our membership class. If you are interested in becoming a member of King's Cross Church, do plan to attend. It's very important that you do. We want as many people to attend as possible. So what we're doing is providing lunch. And now we're going to be providing childcare. All right? And so, please make every effort to show up. It's the first step towards becoming a member of King's Cross Church. Um, next up, we have Easter Sunday. Coming up, yes, make some noise for Easter Sunday. Why don't you? It's coming up March 31st. And as most of you know, we do not gather. We're not going to gather for Easter here but we're going to be gathering for Easter at Kate Sessions Park, which is one of the most gorgeous parks and most popular parks in San Diego. Um, the city of San Diego are letting us host Easter at that park. And so we're going to have a service where we get to sing the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And after the service, we are going to have a carnival, an egg hunt for the families and community. All right. Easter at Kate Sessions is a big endeavor for us. It's huge. And we need all hands on deck. Okay, what that means is that we want everyone, as many of you as possible, to sign up to volunteer. Signing up begins this Sunday. Um, outside in the lobby, we're going to have Mickey and a few of the team that are 
putting Easter together, and they are ready to have you sign up to volunteer for Easter. It's an incredible opportunity for us. I don't know how long we're going to be able to have Easter at Kate Sessions Park, but this year we can, and we need everyone, as many of us as possible, to sign up. We need a lot of volunteers. We want to love the community. Last year was breathtaking. It was unbelievable how many people showed up. And so we need you to sign up for Easter. And so more information outside in the lobby, Mickey will help you. Yeah. All right. Let's get into our study for today. Galatians chapter, end of Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be starting um, chapter 6. Um, and so um, if you have your Bible, grab them and let's please stand for the reading of God's Word. So Galatians chapter 5, we're going to do 25 and 26, and then we're going to um, look at chapter 6, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Let's read. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. All right, let's pray. And so, God, I ask that you would help us understand your word this morning. And not only understand and reflect on it, but may it move us to action. So this morning we want both reflection and action. And we need your spirit to help us with this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, have a seat. And so last week believe it or not, was week 17 of our study based on the book of Galatians. Last week, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. We got to understand several things about the fruit of the Spirit. First, we understood that the best way to view the fruit of the Spirit is not like a bowl of fruits, but one fruit that is singular, like an orange with different slices. Second, last week we discovered that the fruit of the Spirit grows all together within a Christian's life with unity, wholesome and balanced. That means that you cannot say that you have the fruit of the Spirit when you have joy and say, I don't have love or self-control. They all grow together and they're all supposed to be evident 
all at the same time in our lives. Third, we also found out that the fruits of the Spirit are qualities that God himself will produce in a person's everyday, ordinary human life because the life of God himself is at work within Christians. And that's a powerful statement if you think about it. God's Spirit dwells in you if you are a Christian. The fourth thing we learn about the fruit of the Spirit is that we were reminded that although God is the one who ultimately produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we as Christians also have a responsibility to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives through the spiritual disciplines, through prayer, through Bible reading, and through fellowship with other believers. And this was made evident in the verses that came after the list. If you look at chapter 5, verse 24, that would be great. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, if you're here and you're a Christian, to crucify the flesh is a metaphor for what has happened to you. You have died to your old life of living for yourself, and you now have embraced a new life led by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This verse serves as both a conclusion to the discussion of the fruit of the Spirit, and it also acts as a transition to the practical application of living a life that is in step with the Spirit. And so what's happening here? is after discussing the fruit of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul will provide answers to the following questions. How does the fruit of the Spirit, if displayed in our lives, impact how we relate to one another? In other words, how is the reality of the Holy Spirit demonstrated in our lives as Christians. Um, yesterday, Eleanor and I had some time together where we reflected on our life and how we met and how we came together. It was quite awesome to remember how romantic our story was. Um, we met in England. On a t um, Eleanor was working for a TV channel. I was her cameraman. I didn't think anything of her. I thought, this girl, she's just very, very just whatever. Like, she thinks she's like a TV star, whatever. I'm just her cameraman. As things developed, we started one of the first UK Christian music channels together. 
and we worked closely together. And as we worked closely together, I, became, I began to see her differently. I began to think she was quite hot. <laughs> when before, I didn't think she wasn't. And so as we reflected on our life, we also talked about the, you know, the early stages of our marriage. We lived in London, lived in a nice apartment. And during that time, you know, I wasn't sure if God had called me to ministry or not. And one day during that time, we talked about meeting um, a group of Christians. And one of the things that you know, um, stood out about these Christians was that they were very much individuals who said they were always kind of led by the Spirit. And being led by the Spirit for them, or living in step with the Spirit for them, meant that they did some of the most random acts of whatever, like they would, you know, one day, you know, they were telling us that, you know, they were in McDonald's or something, and the Spirit led them to stand up in McDonald's and just preach the gospel, all right? There were times when they did things that were just random and out of the norm just because they were led by the Spirit, as we've seen throughout our study, being led by the Spirit isn't really about these mysterious actions and random things we do. But being led by the Spirit is often evident in our relationships, in how we relate to each other on a day-to-day -day ordinary life activities. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. This week, our passage will give us a vivid description of what it really looks like for Christians to live by the Spirit within a church family. James Montgomery Boyce says, it is easy to talk about the fruits of the Spirit while doing very little about it. So Christians need to learn that it is not in concrete situations rather than in emotional, um, rather than in emotional highs that the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives is demonstrated. And so to live by the Spirit as a church family, means, number one, we avoid destructive attitudes. We avoid destructive attitudes. Look at um, verse 26 of chapter 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Conceit um, is not a word um, we use much in our modern vocabulary. I don't, but if you do, good for you. But in this case, um, what we're talking about when we look at conceit, especially in this, this context, um, means something interesting. Um, the word translated as conceit comes from the Greek word kenodoxia. 
This Greek word means empty glory or vain pride. Kenodoxia refers to an inflated sense of self-importance or pride. It's when we hold ourselves in higher regard than others. The word provoke means to call forth or challenge in a way that can lead to resentment or competition. Envy refers to the feeling of, of resentment or bitterness when someone else has something that one desires for oneself. Provoking and envy can be seen as natural outcomes of conceit. And so, if you have a high view of yourself, if you think you are the most awesome human being on the face of this planet, the fruit of that will be provoking and envy. When someone is conceited, they might provoke others, provoke others by flaunting their perceived superiority or achievements. On the flip side, envy arises as a reaction to conceit. When we see someone acting superior, it can stir up feelings of inferiority or jealousy within us. And so, when we harbor conceit in our hearts, it generates and creates provoking and envy within the people around us. King's Cross Church, provoking and envying, which is rooted in conceit, are harmful attitudes that can severely impact the health and unity of our church family. If you remember two weeks ago, when we talked about the works of the flesh, we did focus on sexual um, sins, okay? We did. But following that was a list of works of the flesh that included pride, envy, jealousy, and all of those things. And if you remember um, me saying that these are some of the sins that we tend to tolerate, meaning we can always focus on the big sins and go, these are the big sins like sexual sin and all of these things, while at the same time, we can overlook and tolerate the sins of conceit and envy and jealousy and all of these things. And the more we tolerate them, King's Cross, the more we are in danger of cultivating division in our church. Provoking and envy will create divisions among us if we compare ourselves to others rather than appreciate the unique 
contributions of each other. When we engage in provoking or envy, we misrepresent the core message of the gospel. And this can be damaging to our witness as believers. Provoking and envy can generate negative emotions and these unnecessary conflicts that will distract us from spiritual growth and our mission to serve as followers of Jesus. Provoking and envy can lead to this formation of cliques in our church, where we begin to um, have these exclusive groups and, you know, um, leave people out of those groups. The primary focus of the church should be to glorify God and advance His kingdom. When provoking and envy take root, we will focus on internal conflicts and power dynamics. If this happens, it will divert energy and resources away from our mission. Take this, King's Cross. Our study um, through Galatians has been challenging in so many ways, but I couldn't think of a better book for us to study in this new season, this new chapter of our church where we've merged and moved into this building. If we are not vigilant, if we are not heeding the teaching that God is um, providing for us through Galatians, we will, as a church, cultivate conceit that will lead to provoking and envy, and we will be disunited and, and unhealthy and not even know it. And so, have you allowed conceit? to take root in your life. In what ways might provocation and envy be manifesting itself in your life? To live by the Spirit as a church family We've looked at it means to avoid destructive attitudes. Second, um, to live by the Spirit as a church family, means to, it means we restore others with gentleness. We restore others with gentleness. Um, look at verse 1 of chapter, um, chapter 6. Um, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Um, as most of you know, I'm using the ESV translation of the Bible. Um, I'm not saying it's the best trans, um, translation, but it's a good one. Um, and in the ESV, the verse, you know, as you can see on the screen, begins with the word brothers. And now, some of you have realized this, but in the Bible, with some translations, um, uses a lot of masculine terms to describe a group of people. Um, the term, although gender-specific, what you need to know about it is that it's used by Paul to address the entire Christian community in Galatia. 
And this includes both men and women. So the question we then have to ask is, why is there the term brothers used if he's addressing both men and women? Um, the original Greek word used here is adelphoi, adelphoi, which is literally translated brothers, obviously. But what's interesting is that in the context of the New Testament, adelphoi, brothers, is often used more broadly to mean brethren or siblings which refers to all members of the Christian community, regardless of gender. And so in Paul's time, the use of a Delphoi to address a group would have obviously understood to include both men and women. It's similar to how someone like me, when I am public speaking in a context like this, can stand up and say friends, okay? Even though most of you are not my friends. All right? Similar thing. I love you, okay? But hey, friends, all of that. All right. The use of brothers ultimately points to the spiritual family bonds among believers. And so, check this, listen to this, all right? Whatever the Apostle Paul is about to say next applies not just to a bunch of random people um, that meet on a Sunday and sometimes in um, homes throughout the week. This applies to a church that is a family, and so if you've been at King's Cross Church for a while now, you'll know that every Sunday we will say we see ourselves as a church family on mission with Jesus. And that is so true because we are not just random individuals that come together that have signed up for this thing. In Christ we are brothers and sisters. And what that also means is that the God of the universe is our Father, is our other Father. And so what we're about to explore is for us as a church family. And so let's look at what we need to know as a church family when it comes to living by the Spirit. Brothers, sorry, um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, stop right there. The first thing we learn about our church family is that some of us will at some point be caught in a transgression. The word for caught is prolambano in Greek. While prolambano, and by the way, I like to bring up Greek words, not because I want to sound smart, but it's really important when we are studying Scripture to explore the meaning of the original 
language, the original words, okay? Some of you know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, all right? And then the New Testament was written in Greek. And so when you're studying it, at times it's really important to understand the original languages because they just enhance the meaning of what's being read, okay? Because the English language is very limited in so many ways. And sometimes we need to go back. And so for court, for the word court is prolambano in Greek. And this word suggests this. It suggests being overtaken or surprised by a transgression. It also carries shades of being overtaken, trapped or ensnared by a particular sin. It describes a believer, a Christian, who's caught in a trap of sin. And so, King's Cross Church, what we need to be reminded of at this moment is that in our church family and in this room, there are people who are trapped, overtaken, and ensnared by some kind of sin. Sin, in its essence, is anything that separates us from God from the life he desires for us, and these can be actions, thoughts, or attitudes that go against God's will. And so the reality is, I've said it, that in a room of this size, some of you are currently ensnared, trapped, and overtaken by some kind of sin that you cannot rid yourself of. And so for the rest of you who are perfect <laughs> and have no issues, how do we as a church family respond to a brother or sister who is caught in some sort of transgression. Let's look at the verse again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore. The phrase, you who are spiritual, refers to those living in accordance with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Let's say, this is not a reference, by the way, to some sort of super spiritual group of elite Christians. Tim Keller helps us again. He says, he is not referring to some super spiritual group of elite Christians. He is saying to ordinary Christians, if you follow the desires of the Spirit, you will do this. This responsibility belongs to anyone who is trying to live a Christian life at all. And so if you're spiritual, what are you expected to do? 
you're expected to restore the brother or sister who is entangled in some sort of sin. To restore in this context implies mending or repairing something that's broken. A bit like fixing a net or setting a dislocated bone back to place. This verse calls Christians to restore others caught in transgressions. But before we move on to look at how we're to restore, it's important to know what Paul's not talking about when he talks about transgressions here. Okay? First, Paul is not telling us to become the righteous police of our church. This is not a call to scrutinize each other looking for faults and sins to correct. Okay? If you have that personality where you're just, I'm looking, where is the sin? <laughs> If you have that, this is not what this is talking about. The goal is restoration, not condemnation, with a focus on clear sins, not minor or disputed matters. This is, not all, this is also not a call to criticize or call out people for every sin or fault. Okay? This is a call to deal with blatant, destructive patterns of sin, not minor or occasional lapses. And you can see I had a grin on my face as I was saying this because there was a time <laughs> Eleanor and I had this awesome idea for our marriage. And that idea was every week when we meet, we will bring a list Yes, you know where I'm going. <laughs> we would bring a list of all the things each other did that, we, that irritated us, that we felt needed to be corrected. That didn't go well. <laughs> all right? And so we learned, <laughs> we learned that's unwise and what we need to focus on is patterns and habitual sins that are destructive. Next, this is not talking about conscious issues or personal convictions. The focus here, listen to me, church, it's not on areas where believers might have different convictions, but the focus here is on clear biblical transgressions that lead to spiritual destruction. Conscience issues or matters of personal conviction are areas where believers may hold different views without those differences necessarily indicating a departure from biblical faith. 
Christians may have different convictions on so many things. What movies to watch, what movies not to watch, whether they should drink alcohol or not, whether they should partake in Halloween or not, whether they should eat at Chick-fil-A or not. Starbucks! Should Christians drink Starbucks? Trust me, it's a thing. Musical styles and preferences, especially when it comes to worship. And so this is not talking about transgressions like that. Here in this verse, we're being instructed to deal with patterns of behavior that clearly contradict Scripture, patterns of behavior that clearly contradict Scripture, and harm our relationship with God and others, not minor disputed matters. And so if you discover you who is super perfect and awesome, if you discover that another Christian is entangled in a sinful behavior that is a behavior that clearly contradicts Scripture and is harming their relationship with God and others, how do you respond? You're to restore them in what? I can't hear you. In a spirit of gentleness. The church I grew up in, man, they were very responsive. You guys are like intellectual. <laughs> Just got to reflect and think. That's fine. That's fine. But you can talk back to me. <laughs> the word restore was used for setting a broken bone and for mending a fishnet. Think about it this way. If you've ever broken a bone, I have not. I hope I don't, but I have friends that I've seen break bones. And if you've ever seen it, it's a painful experience. And imagine, you know, someone who's broken a bone going to a doctor, and the doctor's just rubbing their nose, looks scruffy, and just kind of grabs them and it's just rough with them. What would happen? It would make things worse. I know I see Kevin, he's a doctor, he's shaking his head. It would make things worse. You don't do that. If someone breaks a bone and they're on the floor, you are as gentle as possible. That's why the work of spiritual restoration must be done gently. Author and theologian H.A. Ironside helps us here. He says, a hard, critical spirit will drive the failing one deeper into sin and make it more difficult to recover him. But a loving, tender word accompanied by gracious effort to recover will often result in saving, sorry, saving him from further dissension. And that's how we're to restore. Gentleness here embodies meekness or humility. And it is the most effective way to confront and restore a brother or sister caught in a transgression. That's why after instructing spiritual Christians to 
restore Christians struggling with sin in a spirit of gentleness, the Apostle Paul follows this instruction with a warning. Look at the end of chapter um, um, verse 1. He goes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Here it comes. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This phrase, keep watch on yourself, means to look at, consider, or pay attention to. It's an active form of vigilance. Paul is telling us to be vigilant about our own spiritual condition, especially when we are helping someone who has failed miserably. Paul's inclusion of lest you two be tempted serves as a reminder that no one in here is immune to temptation. We are all susceptible to temptation and we are all susceptible to the sins we feel that we could never commit. Augustine said this, there is no sin which one person has committed that another person may not commit also. And so here, Paul is highlighting the balance between compassion for others and self-awareness of our spiritual state. It's a call to care deeply for those struggling while also taking heed to our own spiritual health health and ensuring we don't fall into the same pitfalls. And so this isn't a call to fear temptation, but a reminder of our vulnerability to temptation and the need for constant vigilance. It's a reminder that we should not be so focused on others and their problems, we lose sight of our issues. To live by the Spirit as a church family has meant we avoid destructive attitudes, we restore others with gentleness. Next, to live by the Spirit as a church family means we bear one another's burdens. We bear one another's burdens. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Throughout Galatians, the Apostle Paul has been reminding us that we have been freed from the law of Moses. We are no longer obligated to try to initiate or sustain our salvation um, by doing good works. He's been reminding us over and over again that it's by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. This is how we have been justified. Christians are freed from the law, yet we are under a new law. And that is the law of who? Of Christ. And so, 
instead of laying unnecessary burdens upon others, we must fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. This is the reality, y'all. Life in our beautiful city of San Diego has its ups and downs. Many of you are navigating through challenges right now that feel like heavy burdens, and it's important to recognize that all burdens are not linked to sin. Sometimes it's just the weight of life pressing down on us. San Diego is known for its high cost of living. <laughs> yeah. High cost of living. And I know for sure, for a lot of us, the financial pressure from trying to keep up with the cost of living here can be so stressful. If you're a military family, you're probably dealing with the burdens of deployment the stress of relocation or the challenges of getting back to normal life after service, the demands of career and this fast-paced lifestyle of our city is making it really difficult for some of you to just have this balance, this work-life balance. For some of you, the burden you're carrying has to do with a chronic illness, a physical ailment, infertility, mental health issues. And for some of you, the burden you're carrying in this city, in our church family, is being single in a church that often centers around families and marriage. And so if you are here and you probably feel overlooked because you're single and there's just this focus on family and their babies everywhere and their marriages happening everywhere, you are probably burdened by this. You're burdened by the longing you have for a partner and the challenges of dating. How do you date as a Christian? It's hard. If you're a college student, maybe burdened by kind of finals coming up or the future, looking at the future and thinking, where am I going to go next? What am I going to do? We're all burdened by something. We all are. And as a church family, guess what? We are called <laughs> to bear each other's burdens. And so how? How do we do this? How do we bear one another's burdens as a church family in the city of San Diego? I am not going to provide you with kind of like a practical list on how to do this, but I'm going to provide you with two questions to write down to think about and pray through them. And that will help you do so. And so, um, ask yourself this week, how can I come alongside my brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with sin or suffering in life? 
How can I come alongside my brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with sin or suffering in life? Question number two, how can I bear the burdens um, that maybe military families or singles or college students or whoever, etc., is facing? Just make a list of all the different types of people groups and think through what possible burdens they might be facing and carrying and begin to pray about how you can come alongside them and support them. There are many ways and opportunities um, to bear each other's burdens, but I think the question we also need to ask is how we can do this well. How can we bear each other's burdens in a way that is healthy? There's a book titled Being There. And it's by a pastor named Dave Furman. And I think it's an awesome resource for us. Obviously, I'm not going to read the whole book now, but get it. It's a great resource. Being there by David Furman. In this book, Furman, who writes from his own journey of enduring chronic pain, he offers not just empathy, but practical guidance for those of us who desire to bear the burdens of members of our church family. Throughout the book, he directs his readers to the importance of being in God's Word and daily abiding in Jesus for strength to care for others. Um, he has this to say. He says this, If you are not abiding in Christ then your ministry is empty and useless. You are like a dry sponge without an ounce of hope to squeeze out to another. You have to walk with God in order to help those who are hurting walk closer with God. That's just so wise, isn't it? And so true, we can only effectively bear the burdens of each other if we are rooted in God's Word. He also says, in order to really do this well, he also says, in order to carry the weight, you must come up right beside the person and relieve some of the weight he's carrying. This isn't easy work. It's going to cost you something. You will suffer when you bear someone's burdens. You might even experience drastic pain in helping him. This is what we see with Jesus. If you're not willing to see yourself burdened by others, you haven't fully understood Christ as the one who bore your burdens on the cross. And so in order to bear each other's burdens well, we need to be rooted in God's Word, and we need to grow in our understanding of Jesus. And so we've seen to live by the Spirit as a church family means we avoid destructive attitudes Restore others with gentleness, bear one another's burdens, and lastly, we embrace personal responsibility and humility. Verse 3 reads, 
For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Uh, at first glance, this sounds like it's kind of devaluing our achievements, but this is not what Paul was saying. He's not saying we have no value. Rather, he's cautioning against self-deception and pride. It's a reminder that our worth comes from not what we achieve, but what Jesus Christ has achieved for us. Look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 6. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Verse 4 encourages us to examine our actions and contributions. This isn't about comparing ourselves to others, but about finding joy and satisfaction in doing what is right and fulfilling when it comes to our God-given responsibilities. And then verse 5 reinforces the idea of personal responsibility. It reminds us that while we support each other as a community, we also have individual responsibilities before God. They deserve it. She's so weak and unwise. He just can't handle the pressure. I saw it coming. Maybe they'll listen to me next time. I don't want to get involved. I'm just glad it's them and not me. I know I would never, ever do something like that. No, never. If you're honest with yourself, we've all had those moments where we pat ourselves on the back secretly believing we'll never make such mistakes. If we're honest with ourselves, some of those thoughts I just read have been something we've thought about or even said. We are quick to condemn, to look at uh, someone else and pat ourselves on their back, but if we really acknowledge that everything we are and everything we've achieved is solely by God's grace, our approach would shift dramatically. Suddenly, forgiveness becomes easier and our hearts grow eager to lend a hand to those in need. The point of this passage is that as believers, as a church family, the only way we're able to relate and carry each other's burdens and love on each other is if we stop looking at ourselves and how awesome we are and start looking at Christ and how awesome He is. Aesop, who wrote most of Aesop's fables, says this, 
Every man carries two bags about him, one in front and one behind, and both are full of faults. The bag in front contains his neighbor's faults, the one behind his own. Hence, it is that men do not see their own faults, but never fail to see those of others. It's such a plague. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. Jesus is funny, isn't he? You can imagine him getting a log and going like that. I can't see that speck. <laughs> Verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so this morning, King's Cross, we've seen... That to live by the Spirit means to avoid destructive attitudes, restore others with gentleness, bear one another's burdens, and embrace personal responsibility and humility. And so as we ponder these calls to action, let's consider three questions that will guide our reflections. The first question is, when was the last time you encountered a destructive attitude within yourself? Second, Number, ask yourself, how can I more effectively practice gentleness in my interactions with others? And lastly, in what ways can I take up the challenge of bearing another's burden this week? Let's pray. God, may you help us. Uh, may you guide us. May you enable us to grow, to understand your word, and to live it out. God, we've been challenged. But God, I am thankful for your spirit, which not only speaks and directs, but empowers us to live the way you've called us to live. Give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.